The Bob Murphy Show, episode 208. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show Today I'm going to be talking with Per Byland, who is Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship and Records Johnston Professor of Free Enterprise in the School of Entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University. Per is also affiliated with the Mises Institute, and that, that's how I personally know him. I've seen him down there a lot. And on this one, it's a sort of an inside baseball interview about academia, obviously from an Austrian perspective, but we're basically talking about the three books that Per has coming out in their geared for different audiences and have different publishers and just talk to Pear about that stuff. Hope you enjoy it. Well, Pear, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, thanks for having me. So before we dive into the specifics of your research and your book projects, which I want to focus on for this episode, but we recently learned you just, it was just announced as we're recording this, I think yesterday, right, that you got tenure at Oklahoma State? Yeah, that's right. So I, I, actually passed the hoops. And so now you're allowed to let everyone know you're an Austrian? Yeah, something like that. I mean, I've been doing the, uh, what is it? It's blocks uh, strategy, right? Just to keep silent. And then when you finally get tenure, you're like a monster getting out of the closet. No, does, I mean, well, so folks, we're, you know, Per and I are being tongue in cheek here, but is that really what Block says or does he say the opposite? Because there's like two schools of thought. One says, yeah, like, do what you can, keep your head down. And then once you have tenure, go ahead and write on what you care about. And the other one says, that'll drive you crazy. And we have enough of a foothold of Austrians in various places that you need to let them know who you are so they can find you. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure actually now that you mentioned it, which one is Block's strategy. He's probably published with co-authors on both sides. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really subscribe to it myself. The, the thing where you hide and then mm-hmm. when you get tenure, you're sort of free and then you can do whatever. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's one of those strategies where, I mean, you're going to forget that you're an Austrian pretty much. If you, if you keep your head down and you do Mm -hmm. econometrics for say five years in grad school and then another six years in a tenure track position, and then you suddenly go all subjective value and theory. I mean, (laughs) that's not how it works. And also you're probably looking to, uh, become a full professor, not just an associate professor. So you need another five years. And then you're probably looking for maybe an endowed chair or a better job at some other institutions. I mean, this is when you retire, then you can finally be an Austrian. Mm-hmm. So actually, you raise a good point there. Do you mind just for the benefit of the listener, especially for younger people who are thinking about academia, just what are the different st- stages? Like people see, oh, there's visiting professor, there's associate, there's full. Like, can you... Like, I, I know, for example, when people, like, if they're doing a radio interview with me and they call me Professor Murphy, like, that's not correct. You know what I mean? If they, if they check with me ahead of time, I say, don't call me that because there's some academics that get real. So do you mind just explaining that real briefly just for, you know, because I realize that we've never gone over that on the show. Sure. I mean, in, in, in a sense, the, 
the gold standard is the tenure track and tenured positions. And then you start an assistant professorship, which is, it's really just a, it's a temporary position where you have six years to prove yourself. Uh, and then if you are good enough, if you have... So that's called the, tenure track though, right? That you're right, that's on, the tenure track. Yeah. And after those six years, if you reach a certain bar that is, I mean, it's academia, so it's set by your colleagues pretty much, but it's it's a handbook and all this stuff. Um, if you reach the bar and and surpass the bar, you get promoted with tenure to associate professor. Uh, and then you're, I mean, there's some some additional uh, job safety, you could say, but it's it's not like you can't get fired like most people uh, think of it today. I mean, you you fire a lot of people on campuses nowadays because they get canceled and whatnot else, and then you just push them out. Uh, as an associate professor, you you have one more step. I mean, it's three three different uh, levels. The 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 remaining one is full professor, which would be the real professor, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then then there's nothing else above that. So I mean, you have all these other types of um, positions. You mentioned you mentioned visiting professor. There are clinical professors. There are professors of teaching and all those things. None of those are really tenured or tenure track. So those are additional positions, sort of on the side. They're not part of what used to be, in a way, the main uh, stream f- uh, for professors. So they're sort of assisting. So they're doing a specific task. So a clinical professor would be sort of a professor of practice. Uh, a teaching professor would be a professor doing teaching and focusing only on teaching. Whereas uh, at big research universities, a tenured or tenure track professor would do mostly research. And that would be basically the only thing that counts. But if you don't publish research, you, you get fired. If you if you don't teach very well, eh, I mean, I think the the rule it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but the rule is really don't suck, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then you can get tenured. Uh, but research that has to be uh, top notch. Okay, so just to make sure everyone caught that last part commentary. You're saying, particularly at like you know highly ranked schools for various disciplines in those departments, that it's not that they want people, professors who are just stellar at communicating information to the classroom student. It's they want them going out and getting a bunch of publications in, you know, ranked journals. And right. That, I mean, that, that's how, so they, how yeah, university they, gets ranked. Right. So it, it's not that they want you to be a terrible teacher, but they don't, that's not highly prized, that attribute. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like a business when, when, you look at the bottom line and you say, oh, with this business, they also want to be green or whatever. Well, I mean, you, can, you, can, you can't focus on being green at the expense of profits because then you can't be a business anymore. So in, in a sense, that's, that's research for university. Uh, the, the big, usually the big public ones and some of the private ones, I mean, they focus on research and research is, is the gold standard for how to evaluate universities. Uh, so, so as a professor then, if you, if you do research, First of all, one of the stars on campus, because you are where they where the university puts all the resources, and then you have to teach because as part of accreditation and all this stuff that you have research active faculty teaching. But I mean, they should focus on research. So I mean, it's, it's even stated explicitly to you as a tenure track that, yeah, you have teaching obligations, but don't focus on the teaching because then you cannot get tenure. You should publish in top journals. That should be your number one. And number two and number three, too. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember where I heard this, but I I had seen something where 
somebody was one professor of the year, like, you know, as the students at the school rated it. And the person actually was saying how it's you know, like, oh yeah, I'm glad I won this and everything. And that's great. But it, it actually hurts the person professionally that some of the colleagues think, gee, you must not be spending enough time on research if you're putting so much of your effort into teaching that you won professor of the year. Right. And in a sense, I mean, I, I met the bar and, and, and got tenured, but in a sense I did everything wrong because I, I edited journals, I organized conferences, I taught a lot of workshops and, and other things. And I mean, I taught at Mrs. U last year um, and I, I wrote books which don't really count towards your research. So I did all of those things which take time from research. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, I, I shouldn't be doing those. I should only keep my head down and, and do research, which is exactly what is wrong with the strategy that you mentioned in the beginning. If you keep your head down and just focus on getting tenure, but then you you know sort of in the back of your mind that, yeah, you are an Austrian, uh, but it's just that you can't do it just yet. Well, then you're going to just do econometrics. You might actually become pretty good at it, but you're going to forget everything else. Mm-hmm. And then if you just permit me one more on this. So again, to explain it for younger people who are thinking about going to academia. So if you're on a tenure track position and the six years go by and then you come up for tenure and they deny it to you, that's like the kiss of death, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, after those six years, only two things can happen. You get promoted with tenure or you get fired. Those are the only things. So you, right. And, and if you get fired at one uh, tenure track position because you don't, you're, you're denied tenure, you pretty much always drop in terms of ranking. So you, you, if, you're gonna get, if you can get another job, you will get it at a much lower ranked institution, right? So the only way of climbing in, in this world uh, in terms of your career is, is to publish kick-ass research, or at least, mm-hmm. well, I should rephrase that, uh, publish in really highly ranked journals. It doesn't have to be kick-ass research. But um, I guess what I'm getting at, just to make sure people get this element of it, is that it's not like if you're in an office environment and you're you know, trying to become vice president of marketing and you've been trying for 10 years and every time that slot opens up, you apply for it and they're like, hey, Jim, you know, Great, great job, but uh, you know we we're, we're thinking of bringing in somebody from outside the company for this for this time, and we're gonna. It's not that you can't go to work anymore if you don't get the promotion. You know, you just get passed right. over, and you can just keep doing your job. But again, with this thing, if you're in a tenure track and they don't give it to you, it's not that you just continue to be the uh, what assistant professor. You know, for the rest of your life, it's that you have to leave, and then, like you say, not only that, but then when you go, if you try to go to a different school generally speaking, you would have to go to a much lower rank school because, you know, ones in the, in the comparable arena would say, well, no, you lot. So I, again, just, just stressing, it's, it's a big deal if you get denied tenure. Oh yeah. I mean, it could be the end of your career. Yeah. It's not merely that, oh, you failed to get promoted to a better spot the way that might seem innocuous in other fields. Okay. Well, well so then again, congratulations and glad that you didn't have your career ended. Um, Thank you. So yeah. why don't we now focus on some of the research you've been doing? Well, actually, um, I don't want to give you a short trip. Can you just briefly give the background as to, you know, how, how did you, at what point in your life did you know you wanted to go into economics? And was it Austrian from the beginning? And just give us the quick version of, of that part. Well, the quick version is that, no, I had no clue. And I, I didn't want to do that at all because I was in 
at first I was aiming for business and then I ended up in systems development. So I was in IT and doing business consulting and, and development and stuff like that. And then then I sort of re-schooled, re-educated myself and ended up in economics, but I was really doing graduate degree, my second graduate degree in political science, in political theory. And then I ended up uh, in economics uh, because Peter Klein, our mutual, mutual friend, was uh, offered me funding for, for uh, getting a doctorate at the University of Missouri then in applied economics. And that's, that's why economics. And at that point, I was sort of semi-Austrian, I suppose. And then, then I, I had the opportunity to go to the Mises Institute a number of times and, and learn and study Rothbard and Mises and everything on the side and got more and more into entrepreneurship where I am now. Mm-hmm. So how did you know Peter? I did not personally, so I sent my resume. I had already published a couple of columns for the Mises Institute at that mm-hmm. time, uh, back in 2001 or something. Um, and then I sent my resume to, I think, to Jeff Tucker, who was then the vice president. Uh, and he and asked him if he could pass it around to associated scholars and, and see if anybody was interested in taking me on. And, and Peter responded pretty much the next day. Okay, so it, it wasn't that Peter introduced you to Austrian stuff. You already were working, sending some stuff to Mises Institute, and then that's how you connected with him. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wasn't very schooled in Austrian Austrian thought. Mm-hmm. I, was, I mean, I, I got into it through, through political uh, action, pretty much. I mean, I was involved in politics in my native Sweden, and, and I argued for free markets, and then I encountered Mises and, and, and all of these texts and, and they just made a lot of sense. And then I, I got to finally study those things more formally. So if you don't mind me asking, and we can edit this out if it turns out you shouldn't, do you, did you come from Sweden to the U.S. for job reasons or did you want to move here anyway? I always wanted to come here, um, but I mean, I moved for grad school mm-hmm. and then I managed to secure a job and then another job and a, a green card and and now I'm a citizen too. So but it it was really just it was grad school that that got me here. Okay. Okay. So but when you came over for grad school, were you hoping things would turn out such that you would move here permanently or at that point you still weren't sure? Um I wasn't sure, I guess. I mean that that would be a dream cuz American academia is sort of the gold standard in academia. Uh, so it is the highest possible. Uh, so in that sense, I, I guess I was hoping for or aiming for it in some sense, but uh, it, it was not 100% the plan for sure. Okay. And then do you mind just elaborating on that comment a little bit more? So somebody growing up, in, like what is is the UK up there in terms of like if you were, you know, you're starting out in Sweden and then you're trying to think, where do I want to get a job? At least let's say economics to make it more concrete. So the U.S. market by far is by far the most prestigious, but are there any other yeah. ones that are comparable? I mean, U.S. would be number one. I guess Canada sort of gets bundled in there too. Um, the U.K. would be second, I suppose. And, and basically Anglos, Anglo-Saxon sort of English speaking would be mm-hmm. at the top. And then you have some, you have, you have international rankings of universities and then you, I guess you would pick universities so whichever is, is highest or, or better. Okay, but your point is that if you rank just the universities, the top 
whatever would all be like U.S. probably. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I mean, okay. as, as an academic, you would make more money in, in the U.S. than in other places too. Okay. All right. All right. Well, why don't we switch then to your, uh, you've got, by my account, at least three book projects right now going. Um, do you have a preference which order you want to talk about them in? No. Before right. whichever you like first. Okay. Why don't we, for the Mises Institute, you're working on a primer on, is it Austrian economics specifically or just economics more generally? It's Austrian economics specifically. Okay. Uh, although the point is sort of to to make the reader economically literate. Okay. And I'm... And there, there, in one sense, there isn't a distinction there because the reason we're in Austrian economics is we think that's, you know, the best kind. So, but on the other hand, like I've, I was reading some of the, the marketing for it and, and folks, I'll, if it's still relevant, I'll include a link. So this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 208 for the, uh, like the, the description that, you know, the Mises Institute put out there for people who want to support the project. Um, but it was supposed to be like an economics in one lesson update but with a more Austrian focus. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's pretty much correct. I mean, it's supposed to be sort of an overview of the Austrian school. So it's supposed to be one of those books that where, where people ask you, what is this Austrian economics you're talking about? And you're, mm. you should be able to just grab a copy and then just give it to them, right? So it should be cheap. It should be short. I'm aiming to have it about half the length of Hazlitt's economics mm. in one lesson. So it's, it's going to be a really short one. Uh, and it should be really to the point and, and and simple to read. So it should not really be for like grad students of economics or anything like that. It, it should be for a lay audience, uh, whoever has some interest in economics, just introducing them to the economic way of thinking and how Austrians think of the world and what Austrian theory says about this and that. Okay, yeah. I noticed, because um, when they redid the economics in one lesson, um, you know, the, there's been... I don't know if there was various anniversaries, but for whatever reason, like we were really looking, delving into that a few years ago at the Mises Institute. They like were pulling us off one at a time and giving us each like a chapter to go through and talk about. And so I kind of, you know, glanced through it at that point. And it, on the one hand, it was like, oh yeah, this is such a good book. This is such a classic. But on the other hand, I could tell it was maybe inaccessible is not the right word, but for sure, younger people reading that, I don't think they would have it would have clicked with them. And, it, you know, it was sort of the, like, if you've never had to buy a house and things like, you know what I mean? Like, in other words, it, it was written, I think, for adults, not that it was difficult words or anything like that, but just kind of the the stuff he took for granted or the, you know, the examples he used that would appeal to somebody's common sense. I could see how, like, an 18-year-old who hadn't had a real job yet, it wouldn't have done it, got as much purchase. And so I, I think it is necessary that we do write something. And and also you're saying is the part of the function of this booklet that you're working on that somebody who like likes Milton Friedman could say, what do I care about the Austrians? Like would this partially address that? Yeah, it should. So I mean, it, it should show why why economics is such a powerful way of thinking and also show why Austrian economics is real economics mm -hmm. like compared to everything else. So not technical at all, easy to understand, but also set the Austrian economics or Aust the Austrian school apart, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's not monetarism, it's not Chicago, it's not any of the other schools. It's, it's not really what is taught in in school. It is a little different. And why is it different? And and in a sense, why is it better too? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes there's a an unfortunate tendency that people have to 
to think, oh yeah, the Austrian, like their economics is basically like the Chicago school, except these guys are anarchists and they, and they think that's the difference. And so, yeah, that is a difference, but especially like when it comes to money and banking, I mean, the differences between Milton Friedman and Ludwig von Mises are enormous. So yeah, it does happen to also dovetail with, you know, the Misesian view doesn't require government intervention, whereas Friedman's, you know, oh, blames the Great Depression on the Fed not doing enough, that kind of thing. But I mean, it really is an analytical difference in, you know, in terms of Austrian capital theory and stuff like that. Like it's, it's serious substantive differences with even other, quote, free market schools. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially how we theorize about things. I mean, the Chicago school would sort of use Friedman's view of of what theory does. And I mean, it's all about prediction. Um, it, it's, it doesn't really matter what assumptions you have as long as the predictions are are good enough, right? So you can, that's why you have these quirky uh, assumptions in school when you take the principles classes and whatnot. And you, you start out by saying, well, assuming we have perfect information about everything. Well, okay. Well, what does that tell us about the real world? Uh, nothing much, really. I mean, the, the point they're making is such a small point that, okay, if everything just worked out perfectly, then you would have a price like this. Well, that doesn't really tell us about anything in the real world, right? It might tell us about the tendency at that specific moment, but we know that people have, I mean, they, no one has perfect information. No one is God or omniscient or anything. Uh, and and we discover new things all the time, which is a fundamental difference in how the economic system works. I mean, that's why we refer to the economy as a market process. Mm-hmm. It's constantly unfolding and we're learning new ways of satisfying consumer wants and all this stuff. So it's, yeah, it's, as soon as you start digging a little bit and do more than just scratching the surface, the the schools are really, really different. What, What were really the common points between Chicago school and Austrian economics is that they tend to, their, their proponents tend to be free market because they understand that the market is actually pretty good. But I would say it sort of ends there. Mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot more that they do have in common. And in fact, um, as you were talking there, I was, I was trying to put my finger on the difference or, or part of the differences. And you also see it when it comes to uh, like the efficient market hypothesis and stuff like, so Eugene Fama, and I'll, I'll put a link folks, you, you probably think I'm putting words in his mouth, but I am not. He did an interview, you know, well after the housing boom and bust and they're asking him about the housing bubble and he kind of stopped him. He's like, what, what does that even mean? What do you mean? Prices went up and then they came down? Like, but bubbles not an operational term. So he was like being agnostic as to whether there had been a housing bubble. Not, you know, did you predict it ahead of time or, you know, what could we do? What policies could have been? But just to say, no, I don't even, what are you talking about? What do you mean a housing bubble? Yeah, prices go up and down all the time. And and there's something weird about like what you're saying with the perfect information. And so in fairness, it's not that the efficient market people think there's perfect information, but, you know, they really do have a pretty hyper-rational approach to things. And it it's not just that I think it's kind of crazy and wrong, but it also, it doesn't leave room for what the entrepreneur does in the real world. And I think once you understand that and how, yeah, markets aren't perfect, and this is what entrepreneurship does and people don't have perfect foresight, then you see why markets are so much more robust than the political intervention. Whereas if the world really did work with the perfect competition and that, 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 then you would have the mainstream approach where, oh, and 
yes, you've got your fundamental welfare theorems. And if you did have perfect competition and price-taking firms and da, 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 then the market would be Pareto, op, you know, the market outcome would be Pareto optimal, but we don't have that. And that's why the politicians could come in and tweak this, this, and this and get a better outcome. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, it, it, it's even worse in a sense, right? I mean, since they are focusing on predicting and in a sense, they, they sort of believe that they can predict exact outcomes. And because of that, I mean, they're facilitating central planning. So because you think that you can predict the exact outcomes, you leave it open to manipulation to make the outcome even better, if possible, right? So, so you open up for all kinds of force being applied uh, so that you can get an out, the outcome you want, whether that is better for everybody or not, is sort of beside the point. But you can, at least from their perspective, create certain outcomes so that you, you can make things you can mold the world and the economy so that it becomes what you want to see. And as Austrians, we understand that now the economy is more like an organism, right? It's, it's, it's a, a process that is ever evolving and unfolding. So you, you can't really say exactly what the outcome is going to be. You can say what the economic processes are like, but you can't predict exactly. And I mean, we, we try to not do that uh, because we know that it's, it's really, really hard. Right. And it's just for context for people. So Milton Friedman famously had an essay where he was sort of justifying like, oh, why in, in economics, what we do is, and I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but I think, tell me, Pear, if you think this is the right spirit of it. So in economics, what we do is we make unrealistic assumptions, like the people have perfect knowledge, da, 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 and then that gives us crisp, testable predictions and then we can go compare them to, you know, the real world. You go look at the data. And as long as it's close enough then, you know, to give us predictive accuracy or, you know, to, to help us navigate, then it's a, it's a good theory. So, you know, someone else who comes along with a rival theory and says, mine's more realistic than yours. I don't care. I mean, that, that's not decisive, that, that criteria. And what, to me, it's, does your theory give better predictions? And so there, you know, and so he's clearly just taking what is commonly thought of as the quote scientific method in the natural sciences. But even there, you know, you go read the philosophy of science and you see that's actually not what real physicists and chemists are doing. But nonetheless, that's what Friedman, you know, was claiming. Um, but what's funny though, Per, is I debated David Friedman at Porkfest one year on this. And folks, I'll, I'll link to this at bobmurphyshow.com slash 208. And he was acting like I was crazy. Like, no, no, that's not what they do. And I was like, he literally, so at the very least, it was like, okay, well, in practice, the Chicago or the Friedmanites are better economists than they say they are. But I don't know if you, I, I kind of just rambled there. I don't know if you have any. <laughs> no, I, I, th I think that is right. And I mean, the, in a sense, they are limited by, by economic theory, the way we have learned it since Kantian back in the 1730s uh, and economic law. So they are sort of correcting uh, their predictions based on that. But if you go by just Friedman's piece, uh, and the influence that he, it has on has had on economics, then yeah, it doesn't matter. The basis for your predictions doesn't matter. That's pretty much what he's saying. As long as the predictions seem seem okay, which then also means that you have to assume that the the world is just repeating itself, right? So if the basis doesn't matter, but the prediction once is good, then okay, it's, it's obviously a good model. So we can use it again and again and again for predictions, which means that that things are pretty constant. And as Austrians, we would, we would agree with Mises that there are no constants in the social world. So you can't really do this stuff. Mm -hmm. And why don't I just anticipate one objection? So sometimes 
people will say like, okay, well, you know, in astronomy, you don't have controlled experiments either, except for like some of the real basic, you know I mean? In other words, like stuff that you import from physics or chemistry, like to say, well, how do we theorize that a star works, that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, they'll say, we, we can't go run experiments there. So some of the critiques that Mises makes of trying to import the, the alleged so-called scientific method into economics or the social sciences more generally. Some people say, oh, well, if that were true, then that means astronomy. You know, we got to just do like what praxeology and figure out where does the quasar want to be next month and that kind of stuff. But I, I would say, okay, on its own terms, there's two things. One is, even though there aren't controlled experiments in astronomy, we can do a pretty good job predicting where stuff is. And if you could predict GDP as well as we can predict where Halley's Comet's going to be 16 years from now, then okay, I would say, yep, you're, you're good job. But famously, you you know, economists can't predict anything, you know, anywhere near the way physicists or chemists or astronomers can predict stuff. And then the other thing too is, yeah, the reason that is goofy is because we don't stars don't think, whereas we know people have minds or we think they do. They sure act like they do. And in everyday life, we without even thinking about it, adopt that strategy, if you will, of navigating the social world by assuming some things out there have minds and goals, other things don't. And, you know, it's, you're just, you're going to do a lot better. And it's not because you're, you can say, oh, that helps me predict what people do. But it's, it's not the same thing to say, like, I understand somebody, you know, he's angry. That's not really the same thing as saying, oh, the reason we believe in the uncertainty principle in quantum physics, even though it's kind of weird, is the, you know, predictive accuracy. Right. I mean, astronomy would be very difficult if Halley's Comet someday would say, huh, let's take another route. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if if that were the case, then then astronomy would need some kind of praxeology too. But it's not. It's the study of rather dead things that follow very simple rules. And it, it, in a sense, people do that too. But I mean, we follow our subjective valuation as a rule. And what is our subjective valuation? Well, that's sort of a choice. And that depends on whatever we're seeing and whatever you want to put in that black box. We can't really tell as economists. What we can say is that, well, we are trying to pursue something that we see as valuable. And that creates all these patterns in the social world. And we can study those patterns and explain those patterns and, and how they evolve over time and as they come and go and all this stuff. But exactly how people are going to respond to things, we can't really tell. So, I mean, what I usually say is that economic theory is, is true deductive economic theory, as we, we do in Austrian economics, it's true, but it's also contingent, right? So, yeah, people are going to pursue the highest value they can in a certain situation, but that situation is what whatever is there at that moment. The situation is not the same every time, so their action will look different, but the structure of the action is, of course, the same. So, can you elaborate? You said, yes, economic theory is true, but it's contingent. What, what do you mean by that word, contingent? Well, what I mean is that we're making these choices all the time and we can know something about how we make these choices based off of our valuations and we can pursue different types of goals and everything. But ex exactly what goal we will pursue in a certain situation depends on what that situation looks like. It depends on our emotions in that situation. It depends on, on our experiences. If we woke up and we were tired or we were, were like eager to take on the world, I mean, that's going to affect things too. But it's not going to affect the fact that we're uh, aiming for and pursuing the highest, what we consider the highest value, right? So what we see around us, that's what we're going to try to use to our benefit in some sense. We know that we're going to use it to our benefit, but exactly how depends on how we see things. 
So it's, I mean, it's contingent on how, on what the actor sees and what the actor understands in that moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, why don't we pivot and talk about um, with Elgar? You've got one of your upcoming projects is you're editing what's called, what they call what the Modern Guide to Austrian Economics. Yeah. So first, can you explain how did you get that contract just for, I guess, other academics at this point who wonder like, gee, how come these people get these nice book deals? So just if if you're, to the extent you're allowed to talk about it, how did that happen that you got to have this role? And then what your, what your vision is for it? And just, you know, a little bit like sort of the inside baseball as to, you know, how, how do you figure out who you're going to ask to do it. And you know, like, do you figure out, like, do you already know what they're going to do? Or do you just, anyway, anything like that, that I'm sure people who, you know, are interested in this kind of stuff would like to know those details. Sure. I mean, what you need to get a book deal like this is basically an email address. Because I got an email address from the publisher saying, hey, we're, we're thinking of doing a, a book like this. Uh, would you be willing to, to take it on as an, either as an author or as an editor? And the reason I got the email though, I mean, that's the real story. It's because I published um, books with other reputable, well-regarded well, uh, publishing houses before. And I have also uh, reviewed manuscripts and also proposals for this uh, publisher. So they already know me to some extent. And they, they also know that I'm an Austrian and all this stuff. And then they figured, oh, here's sort of a gap in the modern guide is Elgar's series mm-hmm. uh, for researchers. And they obviously had a gap for Austrian economics, figured that hmm, we can sell copies in this space. Um, and then they were like, oh, okay, so who, who can we contact and who has not written for us before, I suppose? And and who, who would be a, a good person to to write this book? And it depends on the editor, uh, who they know and, and who this happened to have in the database and, and whatnot else. Uh, so I got that email and I... I I accepted. Okay, um, so they pitched the idea to you. Is the is the short answer? What's that? They they pitched the idea to you. They approached you and said, "We're thinking about doing this, and you'd be good for it." And then you said, "Yes." Yeah, pretty much. Okay. I mean, academic publishing, you don't make any money, so it's it's really just more work and some prestige involved. Um, so I mean, their whole their whole business model is really based on selling very few copies to university libraries at a ridiculously high price. And then have the author do everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's the business model. So, so they are seeking people to write stuff. It's not like a, a popular book publisher where they probably get a number of manuscripts and, and, and emails and everything from, from authors and from, well, I guess they use agents uh, all the time. And they turn most of them down because they're trying to figure out who can, which one might be a bestseller. Where, where can we make money? Now, the, uh, an academic publishing house is different. They sell to university libraries and they just need to sell like 50 or 100 copies to cover the cost of of one book. And if they can sell more, then they make a ton of money. But it's not intended to be a sort of high volume kind of thing because it's, it's too specialized, uh, usually very technical and things like that. So the, the modern guide is one of those series where the publisher is, is focusing on introducing a topic or a a field perhaps uh, to scholars. So the modern guide to Austrian economics is supposed to be a book that a, a scholar or researcher or grad student can pick up and familiarize themselves with what is going on in Austrian economics. What is it about? Uh, and and what, what are the big questions that can be, can and should be addressed in future research? So, I mean, what what it's supposed to do is 
is folk is in a sense be an overview of where is Austrian economics at on mm-hmm. all these different core issues, and where is it heading. So it's uh, each cha- chapter, the way I interpret it, each chapter is on one topic, uh, and the chapter should summarize where are we at, what what is being discussed in the literature, uh, what are the issues people are addressing, and where is this taking us? What other issues will be discussed? What are issues are missing? Uh, where are, will we expect to see research in in this on this particular topic from the pr- perspective of Austrian economics? Where will we see research in five or ten years? Things like that, right? So, it, it's it's an interesting concept um, that I think is sort of focusing very much on 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 grad courses uh, as a as a potential market um, in, instead of university libraries. So I mean, the way I, I I went about doing it first, I figured I could write the whole thing myself, mm-hmm. but then I pretty soon realized that that's an that's a lot of work. Yeah, uh, and I needed to read up on so much stuff. Uh, I mean, I I know some Austrian economics, but I'm not up to date on absolutely everything. And you have to be sort of on top of things on all these issues. And of course, I can as as a scholar. Um, the the publisher is not really even even they're not even pretending to know anything about the topic because we're supposed to be so specialized and have such great expertise. So they just identify the topic and then they pick someone who they think might be suitable. And then it's really up to the scholar, him or herself, to to figure out what should be in the book. And in this case, since I decided that no, it's going to be an anthology, so it's going to be a chapter by. Well, each chapter is by different authors. And then I needed to figure out, hmm, well, who might be good uh, to uh, as contributors to this volume and on what topics? And then I started emailing uh, people. And I mean, I emailed you. So you're one of the, the authors or author of one of the chapters. And there are plenty others of others too, of course. So I mean, we're going to end up with somewhere between a dozen and 15 chapters on different topics by hopefully... Uh, well-known and well-regarded scholars in Austrian economics. Um, I, I hope that people will will write the, their chapters and submit them on time. But uh, since a book chapter, I mean, it's even worse than writing a book. It doesn't count at all, pretty much, mm-hmm. in your career as a scholar. So uh, I have basically no sway at all over these authors, whether they actually contribute or not. So I, I hope... <laughs> I, I really hope that they, they write it and submit it on time. Right. The worst that you could say is, well, now you don't have to do this anymore. And then like, oh, yeah, good. So, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. If, if they're not excited about it, then, then I'm screwed. <laughs> hey, everybody, let's take a break from the discussion to mention that if you like this show and you want to hear more episodes or a higher frequency of episodes, then please go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to see some of the special goodies you have there. If that's not an option for you, then uh, just share some of these episodes with people you think might like them. That also helps. Thanks, everybody. Let's get back to the show. So can you speak a little bit more? How did the process of, did like, I can't remember, even, like even with just you and me and how we, so I'm doing on the pure time preference theory, for example. I can't remember, did you know ahead of time, like, oh, I want like, yeah, I'll ask Bob and if he could do, like, there's gaps. Like, if he did one of these three, I don't remember what our conversation... In other words, like, you don't want everyone saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to do 
capital theory. You don't want 15 different people all doing capital theory. You need to have a, a balanced coverage of the topic. So how, how did that, how does that work? Right. So, I mean, you have to use your network to begin with. So people I can contact and people I'm aware of. And then it's a little sensitive, I noticed, that to tell a scholar what to write about since mm. they are supposed to be the experts. So you can't really say, hey, Bob, how about contributing to my book? And I wanted to write about the Swedish welfare state. Right, right. Because you would just give me the finger and 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 nothing would happen. So what would you, what you can do, or the only thing you can do is really approach people and say, so... I'm having, I have this book project. You are an expert in, in this sort of area. Would you consider contributing a chapter in, in on this area? I mean, you can still pick exactly the focus mm -hmm. or the emphasis uh, yourself. Uh, but this is sort of the, what, what the book is supposed to be like. Uh, would you be able to do that? So, I mean, in, in your case, I think we talked about capital theory and interest theory and, and things like that. Um, and we ended up with... Uh, the pure in pure time preference theory, uh, and and with others, I mean, I've for some of them I, I've suggested something, and they go, oh, cool, yeah, I'll do it. And with others, um, I've, I've suggested something and said, nah, I'm not sure about this, but I'll, I can do this instead, mm -hmm. and it's something completely different. So uh, th that makes it a little bit uh, dangerous because you can end up with a lot of overlap. So you can really just reach out to one at a time and hope that they will just accept whatever the gap is. Right? Okay, so that's interesting. Is that, that is how you did it? You just kept nailing them down one at a time so that you would know at any moment, here's what we've got covered and then here's what is still the void? In a sense, I mean, I had an idea of, of what should be covered. So, I mean, if, if it's, since it's Austrian economics, you need some something on interest rates or capital theory and, and entrepreneurship. You need some of those obvious topics that are sort of, uh, huge in Austrian economics and, and the, their topics where Austrian economics is huge as well. And those some of those are not very overlapping. Uh, so you, I could contact a number of people right away. But of course, then you have someone say no, and then someone else has another suggestion. And then at the end, uh, you, you need to reach out to people, try to figure out who can who can fit something into this gap. Uh, so it, it was a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think I reached out to a number of people right away uh, whom I knew would do a great job uh, on, on those topics. And then they said no, and you came to me in the next group. Uh, well, you were much further down. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's, that's, that's interesting. So, and then I know these things are always flexible and whatever, but in theory, when is this book supposed to be available? It's supposed to be published next year. Assuming 2022? 2022, yeah. Okay. So right. my my deadline as an editor is uh, in December, which is a stupid deadline since you have all those holidays in, in December and, and people are, uh, I mean, the semester ends and everybody's grading and everything. So, mm. so nothing is really happening in December. So I'm not sure how that's going to work out. But um, I, that's why I'm guessing that they will put this thing together. They will... And they will publish it pretty soon thereafter. So I would guess that it's it's somewhere in spring twenty twenty two. It could okay. be later too, depending okay. on, on on what other projects they have. Mm -hmm. All right. Well that I'm excited. Like I say, I was I'm excited for my chapter. I was glad that we found a topic that helps the whole project and uh we'll look forward to the book. So then the last one I wanna touch on is with Cambridge University Press, right? You've got an entrepreneur is it just the title's entrepreneurship? Or it's to be That's the working title. Okay. 
uh, it, it might end up being the title. Okay. So again, I'm there. So, you know, the Mises Institute asked you to publish something. Okay. Elgar, which has a lot of stuff in Austrian. Okay. But Cambridge University Press, I mean, regular people have heard of that. So how, how did you, was there a different story as to that? Or is it a similar thing that they approach you to get this book project? Uh, I mean, this is a, a part of a book series. Mm-hmm. So any book series, they have a an an editor who is well, they have one editor with a publisher, but one editor who is sort of an academic too, and and that editor reaches out to people whom they they think would be a, do a good job, pretty much like the modern guide says. Mm-hmm. I reached out to people, but in this case, they're writing a monologue, they're writing a whole book themselves. So in this case, it's the the book series on evolutionary economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is edited by uh, by Jason Pott and someone else. I can't recall the name right now. Um, and they're producing this this uh, series, basically inviting a lot of people to write on on different things. And and um, Jason approached me uh, to to write on entrepreneurship uh, because he he liked some ideas that I presented at a conference in Shanghai, I think. Um, and then we talked a little bit about it, and and he liked my approach. And since it is a, a book series on evolutionary economics, it has to be sort of very dynamic. You can't simply say that, oh yeah, yeah, it's a uh, the entrepreneur is alert to opportunity, and that's it. Mm-hmm. It, it. It has to be much more Schumpeterian in a sense, and much more innovation, and much more disruption, uh, and that sort of thing. So I guess I guess that's why I, I qualified, or at least the the paper that I presented when when he listened, and then then we talked about it. That that was one of those papers where. Where I, I talk about the, um, the the dynamism in the market process that is caused by entrepreneurs. Okay. Before we, I want to have you elaborate on that. But twenty minutes ago, or so when we were talking about economic method, it did occur to me because we were talking about how, like, with astronomy and chemistry and physics, but in biology, they don't really. I mean. Yeah, you could use predictions and something like you want to do something with a petri dish and make some kind of prediction, sure, or certain things with like, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to remember the exact thing, but like certain predictions of evolutionary theory about how much attention should the this particular creature spend on its offspring, and it's oh look at it's proportional to you know the number of genes or the proportion of genes. That's like you. But in general, like to just look at a pond and say, you biologists, you got to tell us what this pond's going to look like in 20 years or else biology is a farce. That's not really what they would be doing, you know, just because it's so complex and there's so much stuff. But that doesn't mean it's witchcraft. And so I anyway, so it's interesting that the way you're getting into this Cambridge University Press series is you're working on entrepreneurship in a thing that's, you know, talking about, you know, looking at economic topics in a sense, from with an evolutionary lens. Like, that doesn't surprise me now since I was actually groping for that analogy myself 20 minutes ago. Yeah, no, exactly. And, I mean, evolutionary theory is not used for prediction, right? You, you mm-hmm. can't really use evolutionary theory to predict what ooh, what is the next species going to look like and what, what niche in, in the ecological system is going to be covered by what type of species. And you can make speculations and, and guesses and maybe even educated guesses on what's going to happen, which which we can do in economics too. And we we know the that if, if there is a, a niche that is unexploited um, by 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 species that could exploit it, we we can expect expect I suppose that that species is going to migrate into that uh, into that niche 
but we can't really say in exactly when or in what manner or anything like that. But we can we can talk about the structure, and that's exactly the same as in economics. I mean, it is a, an evolving process where we we know uh, the structure of people's actions, we know the structure of people's interactions too, but we don't know the content of those interactions. So so we can't say in what what way is it is it heading perhaps or or what would we expect from the process in the future, but not exact outcomes. Yeah, and also maybe I'll push that analogy just one more time, is that like with with evolutionary biology, you'd say, oh, uh, you know, the, the creatures that proliferate the most, you know, they're the ones that are the most fit. And you say, well, what do you mean by the most fit? Oh, because they, they pass on their genes better than other ones, you know? So and why did they pass, why did this, they pass on their genes because they were more fit? Like it's sort of, it's like a tautology, but it's not a mere tautology. Like there is a sense in which, like until you had that explained to you, it's it's hard to go look at biology or bio, you know the stuff that biologists look at the life teeming on Earth, and the, you know it, it gives you a framework to try to organize stuff. And by the way, folks, I'm not going to implicate you in this in any way, pair. But remember, I'm a big proponent of intelligent design theory. I'll put a link in the show notes page. So here, by me talking about evolutionary biology and the mechanism, I mean like for just looking out the world and categorizing things not necessarily, oh, and this is what happened 5 billion years ago. But the same thing, so with economics, I'm saying too, that it's like you can say, oh, people maximize utility. But that doesn't tell you specifically what they, you know what I mean? In some sense, that's not even testable because no matter what somebody does, you would say ex post, yeah, he chose the thing that ex ante he thought maximized utility if we're going to have a choice framework. You know, if we're, if we're going to, you know, interpret, come to this and deploy a means ends framework, then everybody always maximizes utility it's not that you're going and testing, do people maximize utility under these conditions? Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Like, you've misunderstood what we're doing. But it's also not merely a tautology. Like, it does help you organize economic phenomena to have that framework. Yeah, and, and uncover what is going on. I mean, that, that's what evolutionary theory did before Darwin. Well, you could just assume that things were in a certain way and they were created exactly that way. But how do you explain change then? How do you explain all those things that are, are happening? How do you explain... Uh, new phenomena, how do you explain finding in a new species that you had no clue about and you go, oh, that actually makes, it fits because mm-hmm. it, it populates a niche that you that you were wondering about perhaps or whatever. And economics does exactly the same thing. Right? It, it provides a structure uh, for understanding the economy, which is exactly what the, the primaries is supposed to be about, providing mm-hmm. you with this tool and this lens so that you can see the world as an economist sees the world or Maybe we should say an Austrian economist sees the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was always one of my favorite parts uh, when I was teaching at the undergrad level in the beginning of micro was to say like there was a chapter they would typically call it like um, thinking like an economist. And that stuff was pretty, uh, like most of the principles there, even if you were using like a regular book, not not like a specifically Austrian one, would be stuff that Austrians would have no problem with. And what was really funny too, Pear, was um, the one that I was using in Hillsdale was, uh, was by Gwartney at all. I forget, you know, who the co-authors were and they were all pretty straightforward stuff. Like every action has a trade or every choice has a trade off and, uh, people make decisions on the margin, you know, stuff like that. Uh, incentives matter, Th- things like that. I might not be getting exact word, but stuff like that. And then one of them was to be scientific, economic, laws must be falsifiable or something like that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here teaching the textbook. And then on that one, I explained my misgivings with it. 
and this it was a great thing. This is like the best student comment ever. And a kid raised his hand and he pointed out and he said, and also the other principles you just went over, none of them are falsifiable. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. That's true. You know what I mean? That it, it was, so it was interesting that by this thing's own, you know, internal logic, it had just ruled out the rest of the chapter as being unscientific when, you know, so it's, it's, anyway, I know you get it pair, but for the listeners to make sure. So to say incentives matter, that's actually not falsifiable. And the example I use is I could say to somebody, hey, I'll give you $10 to cut your arm off. And if they say no, did I just prove that incentives don't matter for that person? No, it's just the incentive wasn't big enough or what, you know what I mean? So it's, but yet it does help you as an economist to say incentives matter. If you didn't have that principle in your back pocket, it would be hard to make sense of the world. So anyway, just stuff like that, that it's, um, when they say thinking like an economist, that there, that is that there's a way of viewing the world. And in some applications, it's like, I, I don't know how you feel about this pair, but have you seen like when people try to use economic reasoning like, oh, to analyze the dating market or there's certain places where, or let's look at Christmas as an economist would. And, and sometimes it just seems goofy to me. And to me, that just shows that, yeah, it's in some settings, it's helpful and some it's not, but it's not that it's wrong in the other ones. It's just, it might not be that useful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious. Most of those things, when you, when you read them, yeah, things, choices have trade-offs. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. incentives matter yeah of course but then you have to apply these things uh and do it consistently that's pretty hard and you have to do it in, in a way that actually makes sense right i mean you can have you can you can claim that well murder is sufficient because otherwise uh the, the the person who is murdered would have bought off the murderer but obviously you didn't mm-hmm. i mean that's, that's a misapplication of of the theory because of the well the murdered person did not know he was going to be murdered they didn't have a negotiation first, right? So you have to still look at the world the way it is and, and consider all those parameters in there. And, but then you can use economic theory to sort of uncover and reveal what is actually going on. And that's, that's how you should use theory. And that's how, how you and I use theory and how Austrians use theory as a lens, as a sort of a framework that comes before the data. So we can make sense of the world the way we see it because we have this framework, whereas Modern economists, unfortunately, they're becoming more and more like uh, physicists or statisticians. They they look at the data and they think that, oh, look, at this is what happened yesterday. So this it's what's going to happen tomorrow. And then they try to predict and then they say, oh, well, if you, we just apply a little more force here, then we're going to get a better result tomorrow. And and, and that's not really the, how you can use economics at all. Mm-hmm. Can you, I'm not going to keep you too much longer here to respect the hour uh, timetable, but can you speak a little bit on, you know, what has been your focus in your entrepreneurship work? Because I know that's like one of your areas and you said this particular editor invited you perhaps because of a presentation you gave. Did you say Singapore? Uh, Shanghai. Oh, sorry, Shanghai. So can you just speak a little bit on on that? Like what, what have you been doing in terms of your work on entrepreneurship? Sure. So, I mean, what I focus on is, is really the, the place of entrepreneurship in the market process. So, in a sense, explaining how and why the market process evolves and, and unfolds in, in the way it does. And I mean, I, I wrote a book on the theory of the firm where I, I, I talk about specialization and really the division of labor as in Adam Smith, where we say that, well, people get much more efficient, much more effective, much more productive if we divide the work between us and we become specialists and so forth. Well, I mean, 
this doesn't really explain how a new division of labor comes to be. Yeah, sure, people can can incrementally adopt um, more greater specializations or more more intensive specializations, so they can focus on more and more narrow scope of what they're doing. But it doesn't really explain how you can suddenly have a new production process in place, because you it needs some coordination, it needs some organizations to put it in place. It needs someone who is as speculates and sort of has the imagination to see it before it's there and then take the the responsibility for making it happen and hiring people and teaching them how to do these things in a certain in that production process and so we we need some kind of economic explanation for this and in, in my book that's that's what i call a firm because it's what what is done in the firm or by this group there's sort of coordinated by that one investor this entrepreneur investor it is different from from the market itself, and it, it produces value because it has figured out a new niche, and that it uses a different division of labor. So I'm just, I'm sort of trying to I'm getting at uh, economic growth, but by way of entrepreneurship, and not in in the sense that is is done uh, usually and and by economists, mainstream economists, by looking at the data and just say that oh, well, we need more government subsidies for entrepreneurship and we need more small business. Because if we have a bunch of more, say, dry cleaners in the city, it doesn't mean economic growth. It just means we have more businesses. It also doesn't necessarily mean that we have more employment. So we need some other explanation than simply saying small businesses and startups and, and things like that for, for economic growth and where prosperity comes from. So we, we need an explanation for that. And, and entrepreneurship fits the bill, I think. Uh, and and uh, Austrian economics has a theory of entrepreneurship, but it's it's not really it's not really a very detailed, uh, very mature theory yet. So there are uh, bits and pieces, but we need to put put those pieces together, combine them, and and produce a theory of economic growth in a sense. And I mean, where where does this capital accumulation come from? What does it look like? How does it work? Uh, why uh, do uh, business cycles and, and uh, the malinvestments there lead to uh, corrections. And how do those corrections happen? I mean, we just referred to entrepreneurs, but okay, well, how does that happen? And how come some corrections are slow and some corrections are fast? Uh, things like that. So I'm, I'm addressing, I'm sort of combining all those things into a macro theory of growth, you could say. Okay. Well, um, for the eager beaver out there who's familiar like with Coase's explanation of the firm is, you know, and how it involves transaction costs. Do, is your, what you were saying there, is that compatible with that? Or do you think that, no, that, that's like, that takes the people off in the wrong direction. Like he's focusing on the wrong stuff. Because just to make sure that, so that the listener gets it. Because there's one sense in which, gee, yeah, I, well, I, why isn't everything just a one-off, you know, why, why aren't every transaction just conducted in the open market and we're all just atomistic things? Why do we have firms at all? So that's the issue. And so Coase has his famous explanation and then you just gave yours. And I'm wondering, are those different ways of focusing on the same thing or is it totally different? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I the book is really a response to Coase in a sense. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that theory is, is really good. Um, I, I think it, that that theory has sort of, it's become um, well-known and very successful because it explains the profitability of firms that already exist. So if there are high transaction costs, that means that there are probably fewer uh, competitors 
And that means that whoever is an incumbent will make more money. Um, but it doesn't really explain how the business comes to be or what it does in the economy. So I'm sort of uh, pitting my my theory against Coase in, in that book because I don't think it is a matter of cost. I think it's a matter of value creation. And, and those are, are, are different things, especially from an Austrian perspective. Okay, so Coase says in a sense, oh, the reason we form a firm is because that lowers transaction costs. Like there's certain things where instead of, you know, someone going out and hiring a laborer for eight hours of labor anew each day, instead you have a long-term contract and then you, the boss just tells the worker, do this today, do this tomorrow, and they have to keep renegotiating. So that reduces transactions. So that's one reason that you've got this firm nexus. And you're saying looking at it, the firm as a way to, to reduce costs is that's not what you're doing. So what, what are you doing? You said value creation, but can you just elaborate on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a matter of value creation. So, I mean, Coase's theory is really, in a sense, it's the same as Adam Smith. When Adam Smith talks about the pin factory and division of labor, he just assumes that it's there and says, oh, look at that. It's, it's much more uh, productive. Okay, fine. But where the heck did it come from? How come these people in the pin factory are focusing on, on these operations specifically? And who organized this thing? Who, who financed the thing? Right, so Coase's theory does not really explain where firms come from or what they do. What he's talking about is really saying that, well, in some senses, production is organized by the price mechanism, and in sometimes it's not. It's the manager instead. That's that's his his theory. And why? Well, because the manager might be able to uh, supplant uh, the the price mechanism and, and be cheaper. I mean, that's that's the gist of his theory, and it. It assumes an equilibrium view. I mean, it assumes a sort of static market where the organization of production is different from one, depending on how costs uh, in the marketplace differ. But there's no creation of anything new. None of those firms disrupt the marketplace. They, none of those introduce a new innovation because that's not really part of the story. So in, in, an, in a, a, an unfolding market process where we see more growth coming at all the time, that's about creating new value, creating new types of products, creating uh, new solutions to problems and things like that. And that then replaces whatever solutions we already have. And, and that sort of unfolding does not exist in mainstream theory, and it doesn't exist in, in Coast either. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I think that's probably a good spot to wrap up. Uh, my guest has been Per Byland. Folks, you can get links to all the stuff we've been discussing at bobmurphyshow.com slash 208. Pear, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It was great. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.